right, folks, welcome back to the What's on the Line podcast. We're sitting here in uh, early February of 2020. Yes, it's been a while since an episode has been recorded. If, if you've been paying attention to anything in the fisheries world or the, uh, the fish management world, there's been a lot on the uh, CCA Maryland plate, so I apologize. And as always, I'm David Sikorsky, the Executive Director of Coastal Conservation Association Maryland, a state chapter of the nation's largest recreational fishing-based uh, organization uh, in, in all of our coast here in the United States. Uh, and uh, we're celebrating our 25th year now in 2020 of CCA Maryland. So, again, unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you've probably seen some information about striped bass management changes coming, uh, the population's moving in the wrong direction, and uh, management action's been taken and is now being implemented by all the states where striped bass swim to try and reduce total removals by 18%. That was the charge by the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, the interstate uh, body that is oversees striped bass management for all the states from Maine to North Carolina, including the Potomac River and the uh, District of Columbia. So there's a lot unfolding on striped bass, and um, while we haven't had a podcast episode in quite a while, we wanted to get started talking about a lot of what's happened on striped bass and a lot of what we're going to see coming going forward in, in fisheries management. Uh, fisheries management, of course, is a very complex uh, process involves a lot. Um, it's even more complicated when you have uh, different kind of sectors and user groups like commercial versus recreational or you know, the various folks sharing these natural resources. Um, it's difficult enough to manage things you can't see in that swim um, and to try and estimate their populations. But then when you have folks using them and sharing them, of course, it gets even more complicated. So it is a, it is a complicated process. And so if you've been following along with anything striped bass related, you've probably Heard things like, oh, you know, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of back and forth about who's responsible for what. And the reality is uh, regulations are set and it's up to various folks to follow them. And so we're almost at the point where some final regulations are in place for the state of Maryland and all the other states where striped bass swim up and down the coast. Just last week, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission sent uh, the states back home to implement their final pieces of the Addendum 6 puzzle. And uh, we'll have a lot more on Maryland's role in that. And so also last week, um, some final decisions were made on management in the Gulf of Mexico. And again, if you pay attention to fish or if you fished in the, in the Gulf of Mexico in the last many, many years, um, you know that red snapper have been a hot topic, um, both in management and, of course, a really popular fishery. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, evolution of the red snapper fishery in the Gulf. And um, I have a fantastic guest today, uh, Chris Horton from the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. So, Chris, I want to have you chime in. Tell us about the work you've done in the Gulf. Tell us about your role at, uh, at the Congre- Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and about the organization as a whole. Hey, David, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, I'm the, uh, I'm the federal uh, Fisheries guru for the Congressional Sports and Foundation. I uh, have a master's in fisheries. I used to be a, a state fisheries management biologist, uh, freshwater biologist, uh, years ago, and got into uh, realized early on that natural resource management is as much about people and politics as it is about the critter. Sometimes, and if you really want to make a difference on behalf of the resource, sometimes you have to get in, you have to get engaged on the political side. So I had the good fortune to go to work for the Congressional Sports and Foundation um, several about oh, it's been about ten years ago. And uh, I currently serve as the uh, Senior Director of Fisheries Policy for CSF. And in that 10-year span, uh, Red Snapper did consume a lot of my time. Uh, and it was amazing to me to come from the freshwater 
management world where we spend most of our time looking at what's actually going on in the population um, and, and it's usually not fishing pressure that's that's uh, or harvest anyway that's driving uh, a lot of those systems um, to go into saltwater fisheries management or marine fish management where you know most of them are, are harvest oriented you usually have a commercial component so uh, a lot of the management is is geared almost exclusively to managing the harvest rather than managing what's actually going on in the population out there and and it just blew me away with the red snapper getting involved in that early on that uh, the, the the population was was uh, increasing uh, rapidly. They were rebuilding rapidly, um, and the average size was getting bigger. So we were hitting our uh, projected quota that NOAA projected we would hit much quicker. So as the population kept getting bigger, literally in in numbers and size our days on the water kept getting shorter and shorter. And it was, uh, it was very frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating for many of the states to be able to try to manage a recreational fishery when guys are out there catching, they can't really catch anything else sometimes on a lot of these reefs. And, and to tell them, you know, you've only got nine days this year in federal waters to fish. I mean, it just did not make any sense. And fortunately, a lot of the states in Louisiana kind of led the way and said, you know what, we can, we can do better. Uh, we we can estimate our catch of what our recreational anglers are catching much better uh, than the federal government can. So they developed their own system, Lacreel. Uh, Texas had already been doing kind of their own system, and ultimately all the states started looking at developing their own data collection system. Because again, on the marine fishery side, a lot of management is driven by the catch. And if you don't have accurate estimates of how many fish are being caught by the various sectors, then you really are, you're really, it, it's really a, a swag, a scientific wild ass yeah, guess yeah. as to what you're actually catching out there. So it, it getting a handle on, on what anglers are actually catching is really important. The, the federal system, the Marine Recreational Information Program is a great survey, but it's a good survey for looking at something in, uh, you know, a year-long basis. It looks across multiple species. It wasn't really geared to being able to actually estimate what's being caught in a relatively short season, like nine days. I know, for, for instance, in 2014, I believe it was, maybe 2015, uh, season got so short, MRIP didn't even sample a single intercept for red snapper in the state of Mississippi. And so they had zero pounds for that season. So- recorded so, so and i want to stop you right there because that's a sounds like a very familiar part of the conversation around mrip and i'm going to bring it back to striped bass real quick because um and, and a lot of other fisheries in the mid-atlantic folks have looked at mrip and criticized it for some time because it is being used in smaller periods than that year-long and fishery-wide or coast-wide or gulf-wide type uh lens and that's led to a lot of challenges here in maryland no different than what you just mentioned on the red snapper fishery. You know, you have a short season. This system that's meant for year-long kind of trend setting and understanding is now being cut up in pieces. So that's leading to stri- the, some of the some of the angst over the striped bass management piece. Um, and so, I know there's a lot of differences in the coast and the uh, uh, the Atlantic coast and the Gulf. And you mentioned federal fisheries management and state fisheries management. So I'm very familiar with the Atlantic coast. We have a three-mile line where state waters end and federal waters start. 
And in the case of striped bass, they're just simply managed in state waters. Can you give us a little bit of understanding about um, how red snapper are managed? Because if I'm not mistaken, there's a state and a federal component there. There, there was, there was, uh, there was, um, and that's one of the reasons why in 2017, when the feds announced the season, it was going to be a three day season because they were saying the states were keeping their state waters open, um, long enough that they were catching the bulk of the, the, the quota. And so you can, in the Gulf of Mexico, historically it was, Florida and Texas had nine miles of state waters, and then Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama had three miles. Well, the Appropriations Act several, a few years ago, part, partly to get at this whole issue of short seasons on red snapper, uh, the folks in Mississippi, they can't get the red snapper in three miles. They, they have to run a pretty good ways. I mean, literally, it's about 20 miles out, well into federal waters before you can actually get to, good, to, to some snapper ground. So they were dismissing the season altogether. Um, the federal season, again, is from nine miles to 200 miles. And for some states, that's where the bulk of the, uh, the red snapper resource is. Well, with all states having out to nine miles, a lot of the states like Texas, they had pretty much a year-round season. So they were catching quite a, quite a bit of the quota. Uh, but when we got to the, to the announcement in 2017 about a three-day federal season, that was kind of the – we were nine nine days the, the year prior to that, 2016, and then 2017 it went to three days. That's the straw that kind of broke the camel's back, and, and members of Congress from, from both sides of the aisle uh, along the Gulf Coast said, all right, enough's enough. We've got to do something here. And uh, that's when Secretary Ross basically agreed uh, to extend the season an additional 39 days, provided – provided that the state and federal seasons were the same and they could only fish the weekends. Well, that got us through. And yeah, we did exceed the quota, um, did exceed the quota of some, not, not nearly as much as everybody expected we would, because this brings up another point. Uh, and I, I am going to go off on a little tangent here, but uh, the, the notion that if you extend the season, you're going to have more harvest. That doesn't necessarily hold true because think about it, you know, if you've got two months to go fish for something and your wife says, you know, we got a birthday party to go to this weekend, you're probably going to say, all right, I'll just go fishing next weekend. Well, then next weekend something comes up. So you may actually only get to fish a couple of times during that two-month-long season, whereas if you only have two or three days to fish, you're going to mm-hmm. fish. You're going to tell your wife that, nope, I'm going fishing. So the effort is really concentrated. But if you spread that effort out over time, you don't get quite as much of the uh, uh, of the pressure as you would expect for having having – longer day and that that speaks exactly to the i I, you know it's said all the time especially throughout this whole red snapper process i already said it a little bit recreational fishing and commercial fishing are such wildly different activities commercial it's a payday it's a job recreational Mm -hmm. just like you brought Mm -hmm. up there's a lot of variability and one of the biggest challenges in recreational fisheries management is understanding if you make a regulatory change how are people going to react and that's i've seen a lot of friction on that on that front recently uh, with the straight bass conversation, like the great unknown. And, and that leads again back to the importance mm-hmm. of, of uh, more timely data and information about our activities. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that is, that has been the key. So you, it, if you have a longer season, how are you, how are you making sure that you're sampling that to stay with the end that in your quota? Uh, and so in 2018, uh, again, getting back 
like 2014, 2015, Louisiana started their own program. Texas had had theirs. Uh, Mississippi was working on theirs. Alabama had uh, Snapper Check, uh, which is Alabama's the state I fish out of the most, so I'm very familiar with their Snapper Check. Uh, started out as a voluntary program, and then whenever uh, 2017 rolled around and and uh, we had this extended season, but we needed to get a better handle on the date. It went to be a, a mandatory program. And there really wasn't that much pushback from the recreational community uh, because ultimately, at the end of the day, having better data of what you harvest uh, will get you more days on the water, essentially. Because if, if they don't have a good estimate, then they're going to put some significant buffers in there, you know, to take the precautionary approach to make sure you don't exceed the quota. So um, if they have the data and people are reporting – then they can be more accurate and even extend the season. So in 2018-2019, in on the heels of that artificially extended season by um, Secretary Ross, the states applied for an exempted fishing permit, or then they could implement their own data collection programs to manage their private recreational quota off their coastline. So they had to kind of get to – that was kind of the – the, the biggest sticking point of this is agreeing to how many, what percentage of the quota Florida should get, what percentage Texas should get. And it's based on historic landing. So the, the idea of doing this, the states managing their own recreational quota was something everybody supported and the states did too. It was just, it was some finagling on uh, who gets to catch the most snapper. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they got all that worked out and they had all their, their state programs uh, in place to be able to collect the data they needed to actually manage their quota off their shoreline, then uh, 2018 and 2019 were two incredibly successful seasons in everybody's eyes, um, especially the recreational anglers. All of a sudden we go from a, being able to fish nine miles and further only three days a year to having 40 days or 50 or 60 days. Um, quite a difference. <laughs> I'm trying to, <laughs> wow. Quite, quite, quite a difference. And uh, in, in the process in 20. 18 and 20 or 19 seasons, we knew that we had to get a permanent amendment because those EFPs are only good for two years. So we knew we had to get a permanent amendment on the books. And that was what went through the process. They basically tweaked the, the EFPs a little bit, put that in a, in a, in a uh, plan amendment to the reef fish management plan. And that's what uh, was announced in the federal register last week. So that's permanent. Now the States will permanently manage the private recreational quota, uh, here on out. Our, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. That was just a really brief synopsis. Right. But the, uh, the the flip side of that is the charter uh, for hire sector, the Louisiana charter for hire, because Louisiana, again, had led the way in developing this really good lacrille recreational uh, data reporting program. The charter boats there really wanted to go with state management. They did not want to go with federal management. They wanted to go with the states. They trusted their states. The other States were mixed, but but a lot of them wanted to stick with the federal side. So, unfortunately for the Louisiana Charter for Hire uh, folks, they it was either it was an either or situation. At least that's the way NOAA said it had to be, and that's the way it is today. Uh, so it's just the private recreational component that that uh, is managed by the states. But we are, uh, like I said, extremely happy with the results. Uh, First year of the EFP in 2018, Alabama had really good weather at the beginning of the season, and they caught their quota much faster than they thought they would. But the fact is they had their own data collection program. They were accountable, and they knew they had to shut the season early. I was actually down there on vacation for 
like 10 days for my annual red snapper trip with the family and they closed the season on me halfway through but that's all right i was fine with that because the states closed it It wasn't the federal government that closed right it. right and you uh, and i knew that there was a good well, sorry go ahead yeah yeah i'm I'm just gonna say I knew I knew there was a good reason to close it, so it was it was perfectly acceptable. And I even checked with the Alabama DCNR folks uh, and said, "Hey, are you guys getting any pushback on the closure?" And they said, "Honestly, not really, because there's that there's that trust factor. The states the states are usually a lot more in, in contact in most states with their anglers, and, and um, there, there's just a, a level of trust there that there doesn't seem to be with the federal government from the recreational perspective." In the Gulf of Mexico, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and, and here in uh, in Maryland, you know, I want to give a little bit of clarity to some folks about what's federal, what's not. And th- I think the, the simplest way to put it is fish management, period, is this massive cooperation between states and, and federal. Um, and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, where striped bass are managed, is this experiment in federalism. You know, states' rights, the states uh, are all an integral part of that management system. But but even on the federal level, mm-hmm. in in at least the Mid Atlantic, um, you know the states, of course, are represented. You know they're represented in the Gulf and the councils, and the council being federal management, the commissions being state, and so the states have an integral role in in developing better data, uh, regardless of of the final result of management. And um, this is just a good example of where the states have really stepped up and made the investment, work with their local community and their their local anglers to make sure they have proper information. And now after two years. The feds have said, "Okay, well, good job." And um, yeah, you know, that's that's important, and it, it it's great to hear that the seasons are shut down when they should be, because um, that's that's where there's true accountability. And you know, there's this idea that uh, this word recreational angler accountability. Um, I've said up here in Maryland recently, and in, over this striped bass conversation, that term's been weaponized, and it's this thing you hit bang recreational anglers over the head with. And then I sit around and look at the community I represent, and being fortunate enough to work for CCA Maryland and, and think, wait, who are we talking about that's not accountable? You know, a father taking his children out fishing, following the rules, buying a license. Um, are we talking about somebody trying to run a business in the for hire sector of the recreational fishery? Um, you know, who is it that's not following the rules? Because I look around and see a bunch of well-meaning, uh, you know, honest people that just want to make sure they check their regs, go fishing, have some fun. And 99.999% of the folks I engage with have followed follow the law always do and if there is some slight mistake made you know there's we're the we're the part of the community constantly harping for more enforcement and more uh more folks on the water to make sure the rules are being followed so um i think this is a perfect example of where the recreational fishing community as a whole and you know the industries behind it have come together to be 100 percent accountable in the gulf as much as possible and like you've said it's led to more time on the water but a clear time to close the season when enough fish have been caught um, or, or, you know, when the, when the limits have been, have been reached. Yeah. And, and Alabama, again, going back to them, that's where I fish. Uh, that's, they're another good example. That first year, the EFP, they had to close it early because we had good weather and we knew we were catching, we knew how many fish we'd caught. So it was time to close it. This last year, they ended up extending the season three different times because, they had better compliance, better reporting, and anytime you implement a new program, you know, it takes a little while for folks to get adjusted to it. And they, well, I don't know. If I report my fish, then they're going to close the season sooner, and that's just not the case. The more people that report their fish, the better, the more accurate their data. They know that they could safely extend that season 
three more times, and they ended up still leaving a few thousand pounds on the table, which is fine. We don't have to catch every single fish out there. So it's it's just been it's been amazingly successful, and it was just simply allowing the states to develop their own recreational data collection programs, getting those certified to replace MRIP. We're still working on certification for a few of them, but uh, but to be able to use that data in place of MRIP for a season that's relatively short. And it's, it's been, so far it's been the solution for red snapper. We just want to see it extend now to greater amberjack and triggerfish and some of the other important recreational fisheries down there. Absolutely. So you mentioned Alabama and I know we've had a chance to talk about those programs a little bit. So let's, let's, uh, let's walk through some of the details of how it's evolved. Um, you know, you know, you fish out of Alabama, so give us an idea of like the landscape, you know, the inlets and, and, you know, how folks are accessing the, the red snapper fishery, these reef fisheries, and how the state's been able to tackle this this challenge with counting a lot of participants that have variable schedules and are out there catching these fish in various times, of course, within the allowable seasons. Um, what are they doing and what's the, what's the Alabama system kind of look like for anglers and then how are the managers dealing with it? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, David. And just like every state, their anglers uh, – participate in the fishery differently. Uh, every state to be able to record the, the harvest or develop their programs has to be, you know, uh, it has to be appropriate for that state so that they can, they can make those maximum number of intercepts and be able to get the right estimates. And for Alabama, they have an app that you, you have to use called Snapper Check. Uh, and basically all it is is when you're and I always do this when I'm coming in, uh, whenever we get into Mobile Bay, because our we're, we're on the bay side where our, uh, our condo is. And when I'm three minutes out, I take 30 seconds to record our catch that day and hit send before we ever even get to the dock. And basically, it's just a reporting as you're coming in. And for folks at private boat ramps, you're supposed to report before you land. And there has been some... Uh, some paper forms that you can fill out and put in a box there at some of the ramps recently uh, or, or up until recently. And now I think they're, they're going to try to go to all the entirely the app going forward, but it's, it's just a simple way for them to, um, to provide, give the anglers the power to, to report. Now they also have cameras at all the boat ramps because Alabama has a fairly small coastline. So you only have a few, I say a, a few. There's there's quite a few, but there's still it's still a relatively small number of boat ramps where folks that are going red snapper fishing will be launching from. So they have these cameras and they know they got they have a pretty strong a pretty good estimate of how many boats are that are launching that day are going for for reef fish because that is the you know most popular fish uh, or popular fishing to do there. Uh, so they haven't they they know about how many folks are going out and they know about they know exactly how many folks are reporting and those numbers have not been matching up they at least didn't start off very high uh, percentage of folks reporting but that has steadily grown and it helps them to get their 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 estimates more accurate. Um, Mississippi does a uh, you basically do a hell out where you you call the DNR or through online. Uh, you let them know that, hey, I'm going snapper fishing tomorrow, and they give you a trip number. You have to have that trip number on you when you're out fishing. And then you don't, whenever you get back in and they contact you for a survey, then you let them know at that point, you know, how many fish you caught, uh, how many you released, and so forth. Um, Louisiana is a little bit different. Their La Creel program, they they uh, were able to identify 
the majority of the ports that uh, uh, land Red Snapper, and they pretty much have a creel clerk there the whole time. Now that obviously is an ex- a lot more expensive because you have to have you have to have people there, and so they the anglers in Louisiana went to the legislature and got a fee increase on their fishing license to pay for the Lacreel program, and it has paid dividends for them as far as access to their fisheries. Uh, and then Texas has a survey that they've had for years, and, uh, you know, they just continued to tweak it to make sure that they were able to collect the right amount of information that they need for Red Snapper to be able to manage their quota. And then Florida has a – Florida probably has the biggest challenge because they have the biggest coastline, uh, but they have a Gulf Reef Fish uh, permit that's uh, been free um, that you have to get if you're going to land reef fish. And that gives them the universe of anglers out there. And that's how they def- they contact anglers and follow-up surveys to be able to determine, you know, how many how many fish that they landed. So all the states are different, but it, they're, all their programs work for them. And that's the most important part is be able to accurately estimate what your anglers are are landing based on their behaviors. That makes a lot of sense. And the, uh, I think it's one thing that gets lost in the mid Atlantic. Um, and you can maybe help provide some clarity on how it used to be with MRIP, but I know in Maryland, um, the state is intimately involved in managing the intercepts, managing the folks that are out there with the clipboard and, and actually in the field trying to interview, um, anglers. And one of the challenges in the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland is how, how the, the massive amount of shoreline we have and private access we have. And so MRIP folks, uh, and I can't remember the exact portion of the, the, the other group that does the work in the state of Maryland. Um, but ultimately, the, the folks that are out there with the clipboards only can go to a public dock to intercept people. And so one of the challenges is when you're trying to design mm-hmm. this survey is you have to make sure you kind of set that dragnet to capture as many people as possible and get a, a proper sample size and as many intercepts as possible. Because I guess the more folks you survey, the more accurate information you're going to get. Um, and so that's a challenge. And of course, that, that does come with costs. It does come with logistical challenges. And I've heard it um, said in Maryland quite some time that, you know, we can take something like MRIP, which on its face right now in facing these challenges with management um, and the way it's being used on this more finite scale is is ugly. Um, but ultimately, we can improve it in some ways. So is there, has there been this conversation, have, have the states ever attempted to try and invest more in MRIP and find that there were better information because they had more intercepts? in this evolution as, as these Gulf states tried to come on board and, and find a better way to um, extend seasons and provide access to anglers or did they all start really just going yeah, towards mean, in, uh, separate systems? Uh, as far as just supplementing in, that's really what it, these, these uh, state surveys were originally intended to do is to be able to supplement MRIP because they knew they weren't, they weren't like a, a, the Mississippi example I gave you, because the way MRIP works, at least the way I understand it is um, you know, the states do, uh, it's usually the states that are doing the intercepts, but they're, they're told which ramps to go to based on some, you know, randomized strata of sampling or whatever. But if you, if in, in, in a nine day season, you know, you, you pick three days to sample with intercepts and none of those three days are aware of red snapper is even going to be landed. They're obviously going to miss the red snapper landing. So that, again, it's that, an testament to, it's not a bad survey if you're, if you're looking at species multiple species across the board over a, a full year and you can look at trends over time, but to do in-season management, it just wasn't working. So these, these programs really look to, uh, look to supplement MRIP, but now they're, 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 they're refining them so much that they can, 
like Louisiana's program has already been certified. It is the MRIP for, for the state of Louisiana now. Uh, whether or not you need to uh, develop a full-blown program or just to find a way to supplement MRIP with, with more intercepts, uh, it, it just depends on the fishery and the, and the particular state. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think a lot of folks think of things as if they're one way or the other and, or you know, binary in nature, like slash and burn MRIP and replace it, and it's just never – in my experience, it's never really been right. the case. I mean, you all, you're always going to have a the burden of surveying anglers to understand um, what recreational anglers are being are catching their catch and effort out there on the water. And um, for for these reef fish, is or is this data being used in in stock assessments? Because I know in striped bass, when MRIP sample or you know the MRIP information does fuel the stock assessment, because the idea is basically we have X number of anglers spending X amount of time on the water and intercepting X amount of fish. Therefore, we can make some assumptions that there's so many more fish out there. And that's dumbing it down completely. Mm -hmm. It's like the simplest way you can explain a stock assessment or part of it. But is that really the case as well with with Red Snapper? Because I'm not very familiar with the the actual stock assessment process there. Yeah, we will see shortly because there is a new Red Snapper stock assessment scheduled for to begin, I think, this year. This year, or it might be 2021, but uh, but we will be able to answer that question soon. Hopefully, they should. Certainly would use, uh, I would think, Louisiana's data on that. But, uh, you know, the other thing that, that passed not too long ago was the Modern Fish Act, and it actually directed NOAA fisheries to start using more non-federal data in stock assessments. And the uh, uh, NOAA is actually going through the process right now, looking to see how how they uh, can go about doing that. So some reports are supposed to be coming out pretty soon about ways so that they can better integrate non-federal data into uh, uh stock assessments coming up. So don't have a, don't have a clear answer for you now, cause I'm not sure how they're, they're going to be used, but, uh, but they certainly have better catch data for in season management of red snapper. It just makes all the sense in the world that they would figure out how to use that in the stock assessment. Yeah, coming up. Yeah. And that, it does of course take time and, and building these data, data sets, knowing that they can be relied upon is a big piece of that puzzle in, in forming a new benchmark stock assessment, a benchmark being when, kind of all the methodologies are reviewed and everybody there's a new chance to input new surveys, take away the ones that maybe have kind of died on the vine or, or not uh, make, don't, don't plug in properly. And, and um, I, I think on a yeah. very old pod, one of our first podcasts, I talked a little bit about things like um, dependent or independent um, sampling or, or surveys, um, things that are done fishery dependent or fishery independent. And so this is all fishery dependent and this is working within the structure we have of harvesters out there on the water that helps drive the stock assessment. There's of course, all these other different surveys that occur as well um, based on the species that, that NOAA and other, other uh, folks are, are capturing information to better understand what's happening with these fish. And so there's a ton of science that drives these things. And ultimately in the end uh, they, they are peer reviewed before they're used. And, and that makes sure that a panel of non-biased and, and, you know, highly trained scientists are looking at this stuff and saying, okay, this is the best available science that we're comfortable with moving moving forward with for management action, and then management action is, is you know, put into place on that. And it's this constant uh, evolving yep. process. I tell folks all the time that that fisheries management is is a marathon, not a sprint, and uh, and it's just this massive beast that we're moving forward um, at all times. And of course, there's a lot of different opinions on it, and um, but ultimately, uh, you know, it's great to hear some stories about how the uh, how the sportsman community, the the sport fishing community specifically, is is really leading the way um, in trying to find ways that, that 
work for the resource, but also work for those who are accessing it and, uh, and all the economic benefit that is derived from that in these, these coastal states of ours uh, around the country. And, you know, one thing that um, stands out to me and as we've, we're, un- you know, lots of conversations are unfolding in Maryland and in the Atlantic states as these striped bass changes happen. And to me, it's the timely information that can break us down to a, the resolution we need to understand day to day what people are doing is really interesting. And I know in a previous conversation you and I had, we talked a little bit about how quickly the state of Alabama has been able to process some of those that, that information they're getting from cameras and from their app. And uh, I think you had said almost like it's week by week that they're looking at, uh, at the catch and, and the effort that's happening out there for Red Snapper. If I'm not mistaken, I think that Alabama DCNR can they can give you an estimate of what was caught on Sunday by Tuesday. That's amazing. So within within a couple of days, they know how many fish have been have been landed up to that point. That's amazing. And they can be very responsive. That's amazing. Well, so we haven't mentioned the commercial portion of the, the red snapper fishery. Um, and of course there's, a, you can't go anywhere these days without seeing red snapper. And I don't want to get into all the details of how we got here, but what, from a, from a allocation and a balance perspective, do you have, do you know off the top of your head, uh, what the commercial sector gets in the Gulf versus the, uh, the private recreational angling or, or for higher sectors in the recreational fishery get from an allocation perspective? Yep. The, uh, the commercial sector gets 51% of the allocation, the total Gulf, Gulf, Gulf wide, <coughs> excuse me, allocation of red snapper. And the, the recreational sector, both the charter for hire and the private recreational sector, get uh, 49%. And then in uh, several years ago, whenever uh, seasons were getting really, really short, um, you know, less than, uh, less than 30 days, it was getting very tough for the, commerce or the uh, charter for hire guys to be able to actually run a business. And so they went through what was called sector separation, and we – we uh, we were not supportive of that uh, at that time because it looked like we were going to go down the same path that the commercial uh, sector did with the charter for hire, and that was to implement IFQs or individual fishing quotas. And from the commercial side, the IFQs have done exactly what they meant to do. There was no question Red Snapper at one point were, were overfished, undergoing overfishing. We had too much pressure. Um, we needed to, you know, reduce that uh, – reduce the harvest, reduce the fleet size on the, on the commercial side. So they implemented uh, IFQs and you got an IFQ based on, you know, what your documented catch history was and the ones that caught a lot of snapper and could document it, you know, got, got more shares and those that did not do a good job documenting or didn't have that, um, that many red snapper in their catch got smaller shares. And a lot of those early on sold out to the others that had, had bigger shares. So what we've seen is a consolidation basically of the, the IFQ on the commercial side, uh, fearing that that might happen on the, on the charter for hire side. Uh, you know, it wasn't something that the recreational community really supported because there's 1200, I think, uh, uh, reef fish, uh, charter for hire reef fish permit holders that can fish uh, for reef fish in, in federal waters. And, um, that provides, and that's, you know, Gulf wide. So if you start consolidating that, you know, cut that in half down to 600, you know, if you're going down on vacation with a family and want to go red snapper fishing, your, your, your opportunities may be pretty limited because there may not be that many boats available and they may be booked up. So that's just from the, just from the recreational, uh, sector's perspective, um, that, that would potentially limit mm-hmm. options. 
So we were concerned about that. What has happened, though, is because of uh, the, the stock has been uh, improving, uh, the sector separation has allowed for longer longer seasons for uh, the charter for hire uh, fleet. And they're getting 50, 60 days seasons. I'm not sure. I believe it's 60 something days this year. So they're happy with that going fine. There has been, hasn't been any more talk of uh, IFQs in the charter for hire sector, because when they were actually looking at that and then tried to divide the quota up between, you know, 1200 boats, they were going to get to fish 14 days a year if they actually went to an IFQ type system. So it didn't, it didn't, didn't work out. Now, you do the math in your head, you're wondering, okay, they can only get 14 days if they divide the quota up amongst everybody, but yet they're fishing 60 days. So, so somewhere the math's not adding up, mm-hmm. but from a, from a, from a policy perspective, uh, the sector separation has, has worked for Red Snapper. But if, again, if it were to ever go to the IFQ system, there would be some winners and losers in the charter for hire fleet. And there would be less, uh, less opportunities and probably at a higher cost for someone to uh, find a boat that they could go red snapper fishing on. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, there's various things being tossed around right now in the mid Atlantic uh, related to different limits for for hire and for private. Um, Maryland DNR intends to put forth a reg- regulation for the 2020 fishing season and, until they decide to change their mind, where um, folks that fish on a charter boat get a uh, two fish limit if the charter boats participate in a hail in hail out electronic reporting system. Um, but then the, the private recreational anglers that may walk down to a beach and, you know, fish from the shore or have their own boat or, you know, go fishing. However, they, they are able to, um, can only keep one fish. And there's a lot of frustration happening right now in, in the, especially the private recreational angling ranks, uh, regarding that proposed regulation. Um, it's not official yet. There will be a public comment period on that regulation and, you know, from where I sit, somebody that represents both for hire captains, which many of many of the for hire captains in, in Maryland are, are CCA members. And, of course, we have a, a ton of, of private recreational anglers. You know, I, I like to view us all as, as one big community. And, you know, charter boats are such an important part of our community. And, you know, they're ambassadors to our sport. Um, I frequently refer to them as uh, bus drivers. Um, they drive a bus and we hop on it and go fishing. And I, I've caught my first striped bass uh, rockfish, as we call them here in Maryland. Um, on a charter boat and mm-hmm. um, and love fishing on charter boats, especially, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, my personal experience, I used to have a lot more time to be on the water and own a boat and used to see it a lot. Now, I don't see it so much. It's actually for sale. And uh, I could see myself fishing on charter boats quite often, but uh, enact some policies where <laughs> being able to afford to go on a charter boat and be, I, therefore I get to keep two fish versus um, maybe afford to own a boat. Um, I only get one. It's, it's a bit odd. Um, and this will unfold here in Maryland and, and folks will definitely get a chance to weigh in on that. Um, to me, it's somewhat discriminatory and we'll kind of work through it. Um, it is complicated, uh, for sure. Um, that's definitely a difference from the Gulf because we either charter for hire, even though they have their own quota, it's still a two fish, 16 inch minimum, which is what the, the, the private rec folks in, in federal waters do as well. So, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a little bit different scenario there. That's good to know. That's good to know. I mean, these terms get thrown around like scepter separation, or I think the uh, the folks in the management world would call it mode separation, and that was um, part of the conversation mm-hmm. at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission last week. And um, 
you heard that there in the you know the at the commission there's technical advisors there's um, the law enforcement committees that advise um, I happen to be on the striped bass advisory panel uh, representing recreational anglers in Maryland um, and I know that the law enforcement committee and the technical committee on striped bass both said uh, you know we we um, recommend against this kind of mode separation a mode being a term within the MRIP survey a mode would be uh, charter for hire um, party boat shore private private or rental boats there's probably a couple more but um the technical folks said you know it's really hard for us to tease out the information like we already talked about because mrip is meant to be this year-long thing you know these bigger chunks of uh of survey um they actually break it down into two-month periods as i know you know um so the two-month period called the wave yep and then you tease it down even smaller than that it becomes complicated and then of course the law enforcement folks said you know these rules need to be enforceable we need to know that if we interact with somebody on the water, find them in violation of the rules that we it's we can write a ticket and, and not have it just thrown out by a judge saying, you know, this is ridiculous. And so the law enforcement committee definitely provided some clear um, concern about different limits for different parts mm-hmm. of the uh, the recreational fishery. But it sounds like Maryland's moving forward with that proposed regulation. And again, the public will get a couple chances to weigh in on that. And uh, we'll definitely be out there making sure folks understand what their opportunities are in regard to that. And, um, and, and moving forward to, to try and find some balance there. Um, well, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like if they're truly looking for better data, and they need to be, uh, it, it seems like it would be pretty easy to get that better data by extending it to the entire recreational community. I mean, like I said, the the Mississippi system uh, is truly a, essentially a hell out. Even for private recreational folks, they, they have to get, a trip number and they do that online and it doesn't take but just a second, but you just need that trip number and then they can follow up again. It gives them the universe of anglers, gives them a better estimate of the pressure out there. They've got direct people that they can contact directly about, okay, how'd your trip go? How many fish you catch? So, uh, to me, I can't really understand why you would, if you need better data, why you would just do it on one small subcomponent of one, one subsector. Um, and even if not all of them are, are hailing out. Uh, you're, you're still you're not even catching the, the full universe there. So from a from a data perspective, I, I think Maryland DNR could do a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty much everybody looking at this situation agrees with that with that sentiment. Um, there's no question, and we all know mm-hmm. that data is expensive and resources are limited. But uh, you know, there's some folks in important positions that need to make some tough decisions here and, and figure out the path forward for for anglers. And uh, I want to shift the conversation slightly towards a, just a little different piece of the puzzle that I know relates to definitely the Gulf red snapper fishery and reef fisheries, but also the striped bass conversation. And when the benchmark stock assessment came out, I guess last year, or was it 18? I can't remember now. It's all a blur. Um, but ultimately, that the stock assessment came out for striped bass, and it painted the picture of removals, fish being removed from the system. And that's, of course fish dying um, and estimates of fish dying. So we've got a commercial quota. So there's commercial harvest and that's capped at a level um, that the states all divide up and down the coast, Maryland and, and Virginia are the, or the, the Chesapeake Bay states. Um, so the Potomac River, Maryland and Virginia uh, are the, the largest section of the uh, commercial fishery um, for the coast. Um, and then we have the bycatch in the commercial fishery um, and that would be called a discard. Uh, so fish that die that either aren't allowed to be kept or maybe die from interacting with the gear um, and are not kept for harvest and counted against the quota. Um, and then on the recreational side, we have 
our catch, which is derived from bag season and, uh, and length. And so that we understand a, a basic fishing mortality rate and that's how striped bass are managed under a fishing mortality rate. And, um, you know, the technical folks make sure that, that the regs that are put in place are consistent with the goals and trying to keep, uh, enough fish in the water and enough access on, you know, for fishermen. Um, so we have our catch. Uh, we estimate it through the system, MRIP, that we've been talking about. Um, I'm sure some states may have a little bit increased uh, intercepts and some other things happening out there to better understand their information. But I know in Maryland we're, we're wholly dependent on, uh, on MRIP. Um, and then, of course, the charter boats do have logbooks as well, and that is MRIP does use those uh, to understand their catch and effort. And then we ultimately have the, the, the fourth kind of removal um, is a dead discard from the recreational fishery. And with striped bass, it's assumed that uh, that 9% of what we release alive throughout the year dies. Um, and so that's just a simple multiplier of an estimate. And the live release estimate does come from MRIP. Folks can go on the MRIP website and do a, a data query and, and find out the estimated live releases throughout different parts of the year and different parts of the fishery up and down the coast. And that's essentially, I know in Maryland, what the managers are using to estimate how many fish die when we release them. Um, I, uh, and a, another piece of Maryland's regs um, that they're, they're proposing right now um, is to close a preseason period. So we've traditionally had a trophy season starting in the third Saturday of April. So a proposed reg that I believe has moved forward is uh, to move the opening of trophy season to the, to the 1st of May. Um, and then another piece of that reg is to close April or March, maybe both, to all targeting of striped bass. So you can't even go out there fishing. And so the idea was if you're not out there fishing for them, you're not live releasing them, and therefore 9% aren't dying. And there's a lot of complexity to, um, to those numbers and such. But ultimately... Without, we'll get, probably get into the details on all that a little bit later, and I know I've written about it nonstop and talked about it nonstop for the last many months. But ultimately, the managers are trying to figure out how do we save fish from dying, and, and there's these four types of removals. Um, so in, in Maryland DNR, they're, they're, they're looking at all, these, all this information. And um, in the circle hooks have been instituted for, um, for striped bass in the Chesapeake the last two years. They are going to be implemented in all striped bass fisheries up and down the coast for bait fishing um, by the beginning of 2021. Um, so all, a lot of the states are already bringing on circle hooks. So that'll help with some of the dead discard uh, pieces of the puzzle. Um, what, how, how are things handled with, with red snapper when it comes to dead discards? Are, are there any activities or efforts or re, you know, from a regulatory standpoint that have worked um, to, to try and limit the number of fish that die with, that aren't intended to, to be kept you know, legally? Uh, absolutely, and, and circle hooks have been in place in the Gulf of Mexico for a number of years. I, I'm, I don't recall off the top of my head when it was implemented, but for for at least the last ten ten years, we've had to uh, had to fish with circle hooks. And to be honest with you, I would uh, I don't think I would go back to J hooks. We've become so efficient at catching fish on on circle hooks that I prefer circle hooks on uh, for refishing at any time, uh, even if I wasn't required to use them. Um, but that, that was one thing they did years ago to try to reduce dead discards. And they're, they're very effective at catching fish, you know, in the corner of the mouth and not, not deep hooked. Uh, but another thing that, uh, that we in the community have been pushing, we in the recreational fishing community in the Gulf, is legislation that actually requires the use of descending devices or venting tools. Um, 
and actually Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana and Congressman Jared Huffman of, of uh, uh, California have introduced the Descend Act. And the Descend Act would basically require the use uh, or, or to have ready the uh, fitting tools or descending devices in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, and things are going great in the Gulf right now over the last two years and will into the future now that the states have the ability to manage the private recreational quota. But at the end of the day, if we can do something better, if we can get that, that uh, mortality rate down even further uh, and to be able to make sure we have more fish out there in the future, then then why not? And it's the recreational communities leading that charge as well and supporting this bill that would require the use of um, descending devices or, or, or venting tools in order to make sure that we put as many – whenever we release those fish, we want to make sure that they, uh, uh, they're there to, to be caught another day. That's and that's just another good example of, you know, anglers have always been conservation-oriented. In this case – if we can do a little bit better, then by golly, let's do it. Absolutely, yeah, it's, I, I, was, I know I was going off on a little tangent there about striped bass and stuff, and trying to explain it—a highly complicated uh, thing to explain. But you know, the, that piece of that that picture of how fish die, whether it be commercially or recre- recreational, it's important that we as anglers always pay attention on that dead discard piece of the puzzle, because there's we don't want to waste you know these animals. We want them out there swimming uh, or in our coolers to, to head home for dinner and. And that those descending devices are, are an important piece of that puzzle. Um, as the the striped bass conversation has gone on with Maryland, you know I've repeatedly asked Maryland DNR to give us a picture of what the four causes of removals are in, the, in Maryland in the Chesapeake Bay. And it was interesting they they were able to give us uh, estimated harvest uh, in the recreational fishery, and I think it was like one point oh nine million uh, or a million ninety one. Uh, Million ninety one thousand fish harvested in Maryland um, in the year twenty seventeen, because that was the year that they're trying to reduce uh, removals by eighteen percent from. And then the estimated um, uh, dead discards was something like seven hundred thousand fish are estimated to die in Maryland um, from dead discards. And then I think it was about two hundred and sixty three, two hundred and sixty five thousand fish are are caught in the, the commercial fishery. And there's a way that they they go from quota pounds to to numbers of fish and. You know, I'm just grabbing information off the off the out of the stock assessment that I that I have, and um, but ultimately to show that that balance of commercial harvest, recreational harvest, recreational discards, and I repeatedly ask for um, an idea of commercial discards in in Maryland, and was not able to get any information out of the department. They, I guess, the assessment does have an estimate of um, commercial discards that occur Chesapeake Bay wide, and Anybody can look into the stock assessment if you find the right page, and it talks about different gear types and the percent um, of fish that they believe die based on the use of these different gear types. And so that's something I know we're going to focus on moving forward because any of these um, discards are are important um, to to try and limit so these fish are out there and and can be utilized properly. And um, we're going to try and figure out exactly what's happening in the Chesapeake so folks can better understand, you know, what's happening to, to striped bass, um, whether they're discarded or not, and, and by each sector. So, are there various things? Is there anything on the commercial side that's that's happening um, for for descending devices or limiting discards in the commercial fishery? Because if I'm not mistaken, it seems like most of the commercial fishery for red snapper is using hook and line gear and similar gear to recreational fishery. Right? It's not really like a net style fishery. Right. A lot of them do use uh, what's called bandit gear. They use long lines that uh, drop down these electric reels. They have multiple hooks on them. Uh, 
So they are catching them mostly uh, on hooks, and then you've got the the pelagic, the, the not pelagic, but the uh, you've got the bottom long liners that uh, also catch red snapper using using hooks. But uh, the Descend Act requires it's not just recreational, and it's not just recreational and charter for hire. It does require the commercial uh, sector to use descending devices and vending tools as well. That's important to, to know. I mean, I, I know with. In Maryland, the striped bass fishery, we have drift gill net, we have pound net, we have a hook and line fishery. Um, and so hook and line fisheries, a lot of the, the folks that participate in that are fishing just as if they're recreational anglers. Of course, gill nets and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and pound nets um, are very different. And so I know that one thing that the, the stock assessments try and get at is the selectivity of, of these gears and understanding maybe what portion of the stock is being targeted and with a recreational fishery, you can set a size limit and understand that, yeah, we're going to discard some fish smaller than that size limit, and we should understand that and limit the impact we have there. Um, but a lot of times, these these other mm-hmm. gears have a lot of bycatch, like a gill net is you know indiscriminate, catches all sorts of things, even non-fish species. Um, um, and our pound nets, at least in a perfect practice, are going to capture the fish and keep them alive until they're then harvested and, and tagged and, and sold. Um, but it seems to me like in, in a fishery like you just described in the Gulf, you know, the same fish that a recreational angler may catch on that reef, you know, varying sizes, um, the commercial fishery is catching too. So, I mean, they're catching small ones, big ones, and everything else. It's not like they have a specialized gear that can only catch illegal red snapper in the commercial fishery, right? Right, yeah. It's, uh, they're they're using, you know, certain size circle hooks. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what size, but yeah, they're looking for, and they're not trying to really catch the bigger ones. They're trying to catch, you know, the plate size red snapper. That's the, that's the most marketable for them. So that's, that's what they're doing. And when you, you know, when they catch a catch a big one and want to release it, we want to make sure that that fish can get down uh, just like we do whenever we're catching, trying to catch a grouper because we've already got our snapper limit and all we keep catching our snapper. We want to make sure we're putting them all back. Yep. Yep. And, uh, Absolutely. Well, this is helpful, Chris. I appreciate the time you're t- taking with us today to talk about these different fisheries. I know I'm a uh, self-proclaimed fish nerd, so um, I get to participate in these conversations quite often in the, in the everyday course of business here at CCA Maryland, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, and I, I think it's important to get the word out to anglers. Um, just checking out uh, congressionalsportsman.org. Um, there's a bunch of great articles you've written on a lot of these topics, so I'm definitely going to include a link to that in uh, in, folk, in in the description of this podcast and make sure folks can can find out where to read more about the, the work that you've done at Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and uh, and a lot of the other great partner organizations, you know, CCA and many others that uh, that work together on these issues to represent um, America's anglers and uh, and get us out on the water, making sure we're we're being responsible stewards of the resource and that management systems are put in place to protect the resource for our future. You know, there's no question that is a, uh, an important piece of, uh, of the puzzle for the sportsman community, both in the water and on land. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of the work that the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation does, and then uh, maybe we'll let you get back to it. All right, sure. Uh, well, we, we work with uh, – the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, which is around 250 members of Congress that, uh, you know, hunt or fish or, or realize the importance of hunting and fishing back in their states. And that's on the federal side of things. And again, I work on, on the fishery stuff. Uh, I have a counterpart that works on federal, uh, a lot of federal land stuff and on the hunting side. Uh, and then in addition to working with Congress, we work with the state legislative sportsman's caucuses. So it's just it's that same model in Washington, D.C. that was in 2004 implemented in the states and 
2004, I think we had 21 states that said, yeah, it makes sense that we have a sportsman's caucus here in, in the state. Um, today, that's grown to 49 states with uh, state legislative sportsman's caucuses. And we have a, a team of uh, about 10 members of uh, state program team that uh, works with state legislators on hunting and fishing policy. Uh, and then in 2009, Governor at the time, Haley Barber in Mississippi said, well, why don't we start a governor's sportsman's caucus? So he organized a governor's sportsman's caucus and the, with nine members, nine governors. And we're, I think we just got to uh, uh, 29 the other night, uh, two nights ago, or what is the date? Tuesday, uh, back on Saturday, we had the uh, Congressional Sportsman's or the uh, Governor's Sportsman's Caucus reception in in, uh, in D.C. and uh, had another another member join, another governor join, and so our job is to, to from the governor's perspective, certainly, just to keep their policy folks and in, in, uh, informed on some of the things that we're working on, both in on Capitol Hill in D.C. as well as in their state legislatures that deal with hunting and fishing, and uh, you know we're. We're kind of that nexus between making sure that the, the the hunting and fishing community out there is informed on on some of the policy stuff that's that's uh, that's going on uh, throughout the legislative process, and, and making sure that they're aware and that they have a voice at the table as well. So, uh, you know, somebody that grew up hunting and fishing, it's it's it really is kind of a, a dream job to be able to work on this at the policy level. Um, it, it's it's uh, it can be frustrating at times, uh, especially working in this in, in hyper partisan environment. But you know, at the end of the day, thin fur and feathers should transcend party lines. Got that right. You know, there's it's, there shouldn't be any partisanship. So um, you can usually always find some common ground. And the the most important thing for for your members there in Maryland um, and, and anybody that that cares about hunting and fishing, natural resource conservation, is just to get engaged. I mean, everybody has a voice and, uh, and, and our policymakers need to hear that voice. They need to hear from Yeah, you. There's no question about that. I mean, the work you all do to, to keep, uh, state legislatures, the, you know, of course our Congress and, and now governors together, um, sharing information, understanding what's affecting sportsmen and women across our country is just so important in getting folks on the same page. Um, it's a big part of why I wanted to have you on this podcast today is we're going to continue to talk about some of the policies related to, to, recreational fishing management or just fisheries management up and down the coast as as things unfold for for striped bass of course our state fish here in maryland and and something near and dear to uh to our economies here uh in our working waterfronts here in maryland and up and down the coast and you know it's great to, to con- i want to continue to work with uh with, with great partner organizations like yours i know um i know that you have some great leadership there and and the work you do is so important so I, I appreciate the time you took today, and, and uh, we'll continue these, these kinds of conversations over the next few months and, and make sure the folks are informed about where they can look for more information and where they can, uh, can better educate themselves to engage in the process, because you're absolutely right. If you, uh, if you don't get involved and you don't get stand up, other folks are going to make decisions that will affect um, our, you know future of, of recreating outdoors and enjoying time on the water and in the woods. And so uh, thank you, Chris, for your time today, and I look forward to talking to you some more very soon. Sounds good, David. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate the opportunity to be Absolutely, on. Absolutely, thanks. All right, so I hope you learned some more about uh, what's happened in the Gulf over the last few years and, and how it relates to some of the challenges being faced by the striped bass fishery uh, here in, in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, there are plenty of similarities and, of course, plenty of differences. And, uh, of course, we thank Mr. Horton for taking time out of his busy schedule to help inform our listeners um, and, and have them understand some of the things that are happening out there in various fisheries. So find out more about the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation at congressionalsportsman.org. 
and um, we'll provide some links in the description here to this podcast. You can also see some updates on the Modern Fish Act, federal legislation that was uh, signed into law uh, recently, and um, and how the agencies are doing in implementing the pieces of the of the Fish Act, um, and that's at uh, sportfishingpolicy.com, the Center for Sport Fishing Policy website. And uh, since we hit record on uh, on Tuesday, uh, Maryland DNR has made official the regulations for striped bass this spring. And so the three things that were considered and many folks weighed in on were the continuation of the circle hook regulation as we had in place in the 2018 and 2019 fishing seasons in Maryland. That will continue in 2020 and beyond. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, all the Atlantic states uh, that have striped bass fisheries will be implementing circle hook rules per the Addendum 6 guidelines and the decision of the Striped Bass Management Board in future years. And I believe that the date is January 1st for implementation of, uh, of 2021. And so we're going to be limiting dead discards by, uh, by in- implementing those rules across the coast. And that's a, a good thing for the fish. And uh, anglers are going to have to catch up and learn how to use this gear and use it effectively. Um, in Maryland, there's definitely some folks that have had trouble with uh, finding the right hook and making sure that the hooks are using, being used properly. Um, so generally a larger size or sized hook is the one you want to try and uh, try and use when bait fishing. And uh, I've even heard from some folks that have a lot of experience with circle hooks that some of the more dull hooks um, actually work better in circle hook configuration. Um, so you don't necessarily need the laser sharp hooks, but that's just uh, one angler's um, experience that, that he passed on to me. And so I figured why not pass it on to you all and see if you can figure out which hook works best for you to make sure that we're shallow hooking these fish in the, in the mouth. Um, and those that are undersized can be released safely, um, for to swim for another day. And so the, uh, the last piece of the, uh, or the other two pieces of the regulatory puzzle for April or for the spring, um, Maryland DNR has moved the start of the trophy season to May 1st. So trophy season will be May 1st through May 15th. That's your chance to catch and keep a large uh, striped bass, a 35-inch or greater striped bass during that period. And uh, the, the season has typically started the third Saturday in April. So the days that have been removed from the calendar are going to save uh, a number of those large large spawning stock striped bass. And then the third piece of the regulation is a closure of April to all targeting of striped bass. So where in, since 1990, all rivers have been closed to targeting of striped bass, the state has now decided to close the remaining portion of, 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 the, uh, of the bay and its tributaries, so you cannot target striped bass in April. Um, this unfortunately flies in the face of the public comment that they received uh, during the comment, comment period, and even more unfortunately, really doesn't do much to save um, striped bass. There is dead uh, discard mortality that does occur with all fishing, but Maryland DNR has their own science that shows that discard mortality rates with, uh, with fish that are caught in cold water with a little bit of salinity and that are shallow hooked generally have about a 1% discard mortality. Uh, we spoke about this in one of our first episodes with, with uh, DNR, uh, former DNR biologist Rudy Lukakovic, who did a, a great deal of the, of the striped bass hook and release mortality work back then. Um, but unfortunately, Maryland DNR has decided to remove your access to the water in April, and again, with very little known savings to the fish. So uh, you'll see some more about that in the near future um, from CCA. And uh, from the initial responses we've seen online and from anglers that I've talked to, uh, everybody's seem- seemingly scratching their heads um, at why this measure was even put in place. Um, so up next on the regulatory front, Maryland DNR will be uh, releasing 
proposed regulations for the summertime fishery, and uh, that those should fall in line with what has been called option four. Um, option four being a conservation equivalency plan, which, which Maryland DNR in, intends to implement, where folks who fish on a charter boat will get a two fish limit per day. And, uh, and folks that fish on a private boat or from shore um, as a private recreational angler will only get a one fish limit. Um, so to me, these are discriminatory regulations, um, different than, than what uh, Mr. Horton shared that they're doing in the Gulf. Uh, you heard us talk about that a little bit in the podcast, and uh, you will be able to weigh in during the public comment period, which will be coming very soon, and we'll be sure to make sure that you have an opportunity to, to share your, your opinion with Maryland DNR. Um, hopefully this next time around, they will listen to the majority of what the public wants, um, where unfortunately they did not in closing the April fishery. Um, so keep an eye out for that, and thanks for listening along. We're going to get back on the uh, the podcast horse here, horse here in 2020, uh, CCA Maryland's 25th year. So we're celebrating a great anniversary this year, and we're going to continue to bring you more information and talk, always talking about what's on the line. Thank you.